Welcome to the Truth In My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Good afternoon. My name is Moses, and welcome back to the Truth In My Days apologetics program. Today, we have Johnny speaking with John regarding strategies to address alleged errors in the Bible. Yesterday, we continued to look at rules that help us address alleged errors within the Bible. We looked at three different rules. Rules number 10 to 12. Rule number 10 was to ensure that we do not try to explain what is not there. In the Bible sometimes, an oral prophecy is written down as fulfilled, but it is not recorded in the written word, and we showed some examples of these. Rule number 11, which is to consider the multiplicity of events. That is, there might be events that might have happened multiple different times with similar stories. An example of this was Jesus Christ preaching the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and the Sermon in the Plain in Luke. They sound similar, but they're not the same sermon. And rule number 12 is if the Bible disagrees with scientific theories and current archaeological knowledge, that would not constitute an error. An example of this was the town of Nazareth, whether it existed or not. Where we showed that archaeologists for a long time claimed that this did not exist due to a lack of evidence, but we did eventually find it. Today, we continue with these rules. One more point, number 13. Uh, understand what the word play at all, the Greek word play at all, which is translated fulfill means. When we talk about prophecy being fulfilled, we think it means it's coming true, and, and prophecies do come true, and play at all could mean that. But play at all literally means fulfill, make full. When something comes to pass, it's made full. But it can also mean taking a prophecy that happened, took place, and then filling it further with additional meaning. You'll find quite a number of times uh, God gives prophecies in the Old Testament that have an initial smaller fulfillment and then a final greater fulfillment in Matthew chapter 2, for example, where Jesus' family is forced to flee to Egypt because Herod wants to kill Jesus. And then Herod's dead, and God sends a message to Joseph to return and says, fulfilling the prophecy out of Egypt, I called my son. From Hosea 6.1, people say, well, look, Hosea 6.1 was a reference to the Exodus, the Israelites coming out. Yes, it was. And that was a fulfillment of that. And in the calling of Jesus, God's own son, we have a greater fulfillment. It's filling further, play it all, filling further what had been filled once. Uh, another thing to remember about prophecy, sometimes people say, oh, look, here's a prophecy here. It wasn't fulfilled. Well, sometimes it was. You just don't have the historical data to know. But it's also important to understand this principle from God because he enunciates it for us clearly and he illustrates it. Uh, in Jeremiah 18, 1 to 10, and we'll look specifically from the middle of verse 6 onwards, we read, this is God speaking to Jeremiah after he's shown him the potter uh, at the wheel. And God says, look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck down, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant 
I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it. If it does evil in my sight, so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I had said I would benefit. So what that means is sometimes God will say, this is going to happen. And depending on how people respond, it doesn't happen. We have a perfect illustration of that in the book of Jonah. If you look at chapter 3, Jonah goes in bringing God's message, the word that God told him to preach, which is yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was a prophecy. Nineveh would be overthrown. What did the Ninevites do? Well, they genuinely repented, called a fast, and uh, God wasn't impressed with the fast. What he was impressed with is that they actually turned from their evil. Leaders were saying, let everyone turn from the evil and the violence that is in his hands. And then we read that God saw their works in Jonah 3.10. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So God said, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown, and then he didn't do it. So that happens sometimes in accordance with his stated principle in Jeremiah 18.1-10. It's another thing to understand. Wow. So we do have a lot of different principles to go on. And I think this really can help us to deal with the different types of allergen errors in the Bible, especially the one with fulfillment, because I think, especially these days, you know, due to what's been happening in the world, a lot of uh, teachers are talking about prophecies and fulfillments and all all that. So uh, it's interesting to see how we can, how the Bible uh, deals with fulfillment. Um, But uh, now you also said, that there were two types of supposed contradictions, internal to a book and external, where there's no problem with an account in one book, but the account of the sentiment in another book is different and cannot be reconciled with the first account. Now, I think this usually happens in the gospel books. Like a lot of people would point out, you know, the gospel seems to be talking about the same event, but they seem to be recorded quite differently. So what about these ones? Yes, this is another era where you get a lot of skeptical attacks. Uh, And they focus on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because those four books are all telling the same story, uh, the, the life, the ministry, the miracles, and the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so they can compare and contrast the accounts and try to find discrepancies among them. Now, it should be pointed out that the fact that we have four separate accounts of Jesus' life, ministry, miracles, death, and resurrection. Two of them direct eyewitness testimony written by eyewitnesses. A third direct eyewitness testimony written through an agent. And the fourth is based on direct eyewitness testimony delivered to the writer uh, is is very strong evidence for the truth of this and gives us a firm uh, foundation for our belief in the truths of the accounts of Jesus. But at the same time, we, we note that no writer could write and include everything in his account. Even uh, John, at the end of his gospel book, says that Jesus did so many things that if, uh, if everything he did was written down, the world itself could not contain all the books that would be written. Every writer has to pick and choose. And, uh, and so, yes, you might find discrepancies among them. But it doesn't mean that these, as we've said before, It doesn't mean these are errors unless they're irreconcilable. Now, 
skeptics do like to say there are these differences and they're irreconcilable. For example, they would say that if you look in Matthew's uh, post-resurrection account, he talks about two angels. He just said two angels there, whereas Luke says only one. Now, that doesn't constitute a contradiction unless Matthew said only one. So this is what I mean by fitting them together. It's what's called harmonization. And harmonization means fitting the two accounts together and seeing if there's, there's a consistent way in which everything set by the writers could all fit together with no actual contradiction. And that's what Christians have been doing since attacks on these books started. What I find very strange is there's a movement among our scholars, evangelical scholars, to deride this idea, to say, let's not do harmonizations. Let's just accept that there are contradictions and errors in the gospel books. Uh, Dr. Michael Lacona, in his recent book, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels, uh, writes this. Devout believers have been troubled by the differences in the Gospels. They have often responded with harmonization effort, some of which have bordered on subjecting the Gospel texts to a sort of hermeneutical waterboarding until they tell the exegete what he or she wants to hear. Doing such violence to the texts is unnecessary, since a large majority of the differences can quite easily and rightly be appreciated and or resolved in light of the literary conventions of ancient biography and history writers. For many, this will require a paradigm shift, especially for those outside academia who may tend to read the Gospels anachronistically as though ancient biographers and historians wrote with the same objectives and conventions as their modern cousins. Now, what they say is that, look, ancient biographers weren't interested in getting facts right. They were interested in making their stories interesting. And so they would make up stuff. They would change stuff. And they're saying, these scholars, that, you know, we should accept that the gospel books are written that way. They wanted them to be interesting. So they changed stuff. They made up stuff. Oh, and by the way, they forgot some stuff. They got stuff wrong. We should just look at it as, as another Greco-Roman pagan piece of writing. They imitated their style. They can't come out of their own culture. See, it's, what about the fact that it's God-breathed? Doesn't that transcend culture? I would think it does. I would think that this idea that the gospel writers put in errors deliberately is not acceptable. And the irony of it is, uh, is that this writer, Lacona, tells us, yeah, there, there, were, there were historians at the time who tried to get everything right, who didn't make up stuff and, and put in stuff and change stuff. They tried to record it exactly as it happened, but we shouldn't see the gospel books that way. Okay? Well, it seems very strange to me. Luke in his prologue writes that, that he, is, he is putting this orderly account of Jesus so that you may know the certainty of those things believed among us. He doesn't say, I've done this so that you can be entertained that you can be highly regarded. I'm sorry, our, our faith is not based on fables or errors. And the gospel writers were writing the word of God. They're inspired by the Holy Spirit, as we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 16. Jesus himself promised the apostles in John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance whatever I said to you. 
And so this idea that the gospel books, we shouldn't harmonize and we should just take them as, as contradictions is, is utterly unacceptable. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. But please join us for the next part tomorrow. Same time and same place. If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. We would love to hear from you. Please feel free to share any questions or comments you may have. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, MeWe, and YouTube. Simply search Truth In My Days as one word. Again, Truth In My Days as one word, no spaces in between. And you can connect with us. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you. Thank you.